Well, we've now come to our reading this morning. Now, I've invited Lionel. Uh, he's going to come and speak to us uh, this passage this morning. And we are reading from Psalm chapter 50 this morning. Now, if you don't have a Bible, the uh, link to the passage is down in the description box below. So you can follow along as we read now. So thanks, Lionel. We're reading Psalm chapter 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, from Zion perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my consecrated ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O Israel, my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your store or goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. But to the wicked God says, What right do you have to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him, and you throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil, and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother, and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you, and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who sacrifices thank offerings honours me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the God of salvation. God, God bless his word to us. Well, if you've got your Bible with you, then let's turn together to the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 50, and we're going to look at it together now. God's judgment is not something that we often hear about today, let alone sing about. And yet the passage we're looking at is a psalm, and that means it's a song, and it's written for God's people to sing. The writer Asaph was King David's national worship leader, and it's actually worth doing a word search of his name through the Old Testament because he turns out he's quite a legend. He leaves a legacy of faithful godliness, both through his own ministry, so he writes 12 of the Psalms, and through the ministry of his descendants, who continued to lead the national worship of Israel, even hundreds of years after Asaph's death. And I don't know about you, but I would have expected a song of joy or worship from David's worship leader, not a song about God's judgment on God's people. 
that kind of theme for a song is just a little bit edgy, isn't it, for something a national worship leader would write? Uh, for example, could you imagine our response today if Rend Collective were to write a song starting with the lines, God will judge his people for their wickedness? So it forces us, doesn't it, to ask the question, why did Asaph write this psalm? And if it's in the Bible, why does God feel that we need to read it? Do you know, the psalm ultimately is an invitation to God's people, to us even today, to sing this psalm too, and to see that because God is gracious, rather than cursing us, God's judgment is something that's meant to bless us and bring us to him. So we're going to look at this psalm together now, and we're going to see four things that surprise us in the psalm. The first surprise of the psalm comes in the opening verses, and that's our first point. God's people are judged. Let me read the opening verses again. They say this, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. So here Asaph describes God rising up in action and majesty to gather the nations before him. And the surprise for the reader is that God judges his people first ahead of the nations. Look with me at verses four to six. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness for he is a God of justice. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important for us to think through what we mean by God's judgment. For example, for those of us who might not, uh, who, who might be worried, this psalm is not referring to final judgment. Rather, when this psalm talks about God judging his people, it's talking about God bringing them to their senses now through suffering or disaster because their daily walk with him has broken down in some way. And we have to steer a, a careful path as we think through this issue. Because on the one hand, it's right to say that God will not judge his people, people in a salvation sense. If we're saved, that salvation cannot be undone. The Bible's clear on that. So 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says this, for Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So if we truly belong to him, Jesus has taken our eternal judgment once and for all. And because of him, we have a personal relationship with God that cannot be undone. But on the other hand, in this world, God's people cannot be complacent about their status as God's saved children. Do you know, we still have a responsibility to live obedient, godly lives. And when we don't, God will judge us. He will shake us till we wake up to our disobedience. And he does that because he loves us. And that principle is not exclusively limited to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are numerous times when God shakes his people because their witness has gone astray morally or spiritually. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that the Corinthian church was taking communion together in a way that was mocking God. This is what Paul says about the consequences of their actions in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 29 to 32. He says this, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, 
In other words, those who mock Jesus with inconsistent lives uh, that are inconsistent with their faith. Well, those people eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why, he says Paul, many among you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. When we're judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So there's a sense in which when God talks about disciplining those he loves, he means bringing them to their senses, challenging their behaviour by bringing suffering or disaster of some sort in order to make them think about the way they are relating to God their saviour. In many ways, God, God's expectation of his church are a bit like the expectations that a nation has on their ambassadors overseas. When we send an ambassador to a foreign country, we expect her to represent our nation in the best possible light. In the same way, Christ expects his people to be like him, to be self-controlled, sober-minded, to walk this world as his ambassadors. Christ expects much from his people. And yet, unlike British ambassadors who go overseas because it's their job, Christians are ambassadors for the Lord because we love our King and we want to represent him well. So for these reasons, it mustn't surprise us that Asaph writes this psalm about God judging his people. Asaph is a seer. He's a bit like a prophet. He saw things about the reality of the presence of God that others couldn't. Other people saw with their eyes, but the seers saw with their hearts. They were close to God, they listened to God, and they sang to remind God's people of the intimate relationship that God uh, had with them and they had with God and, what, and that they uniquely enjoyed. So as the seer, Asaph reminds them that as God's people, God expects much joyful obedience from them. And so it's right for God to judge his people because through his discipline, they, they will live changed lives that are a witness of God's goodness to the world. So if the first surprise is about who is judged, the second surprise of this psalm relates to what Asaph sees. And that's our second point. God's people are judged because their motives are wrong. God's people are judged because their motives are wrong. Asaph records God's words to his people in verse 8. He says this, I bring no charge, uh, charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings which are ever before me. In other words, God starts off by saying it's not their actions that are wrong, it's their motives. And in the following verses, God outlines the problem. Verse 9 explains their heart behind their sacrifices. It seems that they felt God needed their sacrifices. They believed that by sacrificing animals to God, they were somehow doing God a favour. Their sacrifices, they believed, were there to keep him on their side. But God replies that everything ultimately belongs to him. Every animal, whether domestic or wild, every bird, every insect, they all belong to him. And that means there is nothing that God's people can do to make God give them what they want. He's got everything. Why do they believe their offerings can change or add to what he has and bring him on their side? He's got no need for their burnt offerings. They will not earn spiritual gold stars by trying to offer God something more. Essentially, they expected God to scratch their backs because they believed they were scratching his back. 
It's an expectation that even today is what the prosperity gospel thrives on. It's also an expectation uh, that explains why you'll find more people willing to serve in the local mosque than the local church. Sacrifice for personal reward, sacrifice to keep God on our side is actually self-serving and highly motivating, isn't it? But the seer sees something else too. He sees what God wants. Instead of those hollow sacrifices, God wants relationship. A chat, an honest to God natter. He, he wants us to cut out the noise, cut out the expectation, cut out the bribery. God invites them to a meal, a fellowship offering. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. God says this, sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. Now, thank offerings were peace offerings. We find them described in Leviticus 7. They were the only kind of sacrifice in which the worshipper ate some of the animals, uh, the sacrificial animal. And the purpose was to share a meal together as a family, as the needy, with God as the host. In, in many ways, it is kind of a foreshadowing and, and, and an echo of the thank offerings of communion, where we, we celebrate God's sacrifice and gather together with God in fellowship and in fellowship with one another. And that's what God wants here. That's why in verse 15 of our psalm, God invites his people to call upon him that he may deliver them from judgment and that they may honour him once more in communion with him. In other words, God invites them to engage with his heart, not his wallet. Why do we need to sing this song too? It's because in difficult times, it's easy to slip into the wrong way of thinking that Asaph sees around him. For example, Christians today might sometimes say things like this, I've been serving in church for 25 years, so why am I suffering? Why are things going wrong? Why is God punishing me by making things uh, hard for me? Why, if I've given him so much, is this happening? Sometimes our attitude betrays more than we think. How often when things are good, do we think, actually me and God, things are cool. But in co contrast, when the oven breaks down or the lane that we're in on the motorway is the slowest, or when church isn't what we want or like, then our response is to get cross at God. It's a tit-for-tat thinking. I wonder whether unknowingly we're expecting God's protection from harm because we're committed to the church. Others of us might be struggling with resentment. It might be that we're bitterly thinking God owes me something because of what we've sacrificed for him. Or we might be bitter with God because he's not given us what we want in spite of what we've given to him. Perhaps the true surprise of the psalm is that it reveals something of what we're like. And we need to repent of our wrong expectations of God and seek to relate to God rightly in fellowship with him. Perhaps as we struggle in a coronavirus world, God is using it to challenge the way we relate to him. And he's asking us to think afresh about whether or not we're truly fellowshipping with him in a way that he wants. So it's surprising to hear that God's people are judged and that their motives are wrong. And the third surprise of these verses is that the religious are hypocrites. And that's our third point. The religious are hypocrites. It's not just those who offer sacrifices whose hearts are wrong, whose hearts are wrong. 
The harshest words of this psalm are reserved for those whose religion is hypocritical. Look with me at verses 17 to 19. They say this, you hate my instructions and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. It seems that the religious people are faithfully reciting God's law, as verse 16 records. But in reality, there's no evidence of their lives being changed by God's law. They're rebuked for looking good on the outside without their lives changing on the inside. And verse 21 tells us what was at the heart of this hypocrisy. Let me read it to you. God says this, when did these things, well, sorry, when you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. It's one of the most chilling verses of the Bible. Their understanding of God, of his power, his majesty, his might, his perfection, his holiness was way too small. They thought they knew God, but in reality, they only knew a God of their own making. And that meant they misunderstood God's silent. It meant they didn't believe God would mind their sin. And we have to be careful here. Because in a sense, there is, the religious, there is a religious hypocrite in all of us. How so? Well, if we're listening to this and thinking, I know so-and-so needs to hear this, then we're in danger of thinking that we don't need to hear it. If we're hoping this sermon challenges the hearts of those around us, then we're in danger of thinking God is exactly like us. And we've forgotten that God's word must challenge our hearts first. But what I love about this song is that it doesn't stop at this third surprise. It's got one more surprise up its sleeve, a surprise that if we truly believe in Jesus will amaze us. And it's simply this, Asaph sees that God provides a way. That's the fourth, fourth and, and last thing I want to point out. Asaph sees that God provides a way. Let's read verses 22 together. Consider this, you who forget God. Or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Uh, these, th this, this penultimate verse is a warning. It's a warning for the religious people who think they can do God their own way, keeping God at a distance and not coming under his lordship. Asaph promises that this way only leads to an eternal destruction that even God cannot deliver us from. And yet there's another way, a way through a promise. Look at the last verse with me, verse 23. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version because it's a more literal translation of what Asaph wrote. It says this in the ESV, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The psalm ends with God's invitation to order our way rightly, to do God God's way in obedience and humble submission to his salvation. And let's be honest, we cannot have uh, God's, um, God's salvation without his lordship, the one without the other. We cannot say God is my saviour, but I will not submit to him as Lord. That leads to a self-indulgent religion that says God will overlook our sin because we think it doesn't matter. Neither can we have God's lordship without his salvation. That leads to a works-based faith full of guilt and rules full of thinking I can save myself. But look once more at the offer here on the table at the end of this psalm. Only God will save. 
and only he is Lord. To accept both as truth that guides our way is to listen to God and come into fellowship with him. Isn't that amazing news? It illustrates how positive God's judgment on his people actually is. When God judges his people, it's never to destruction. It's always there to bring us to his table, to bring us onto his sofa. He wants to sit us down with him and fellowship with us, to utterly immerse ourselves in his presence and his love in such a way that we are lost in wonder, love and praise, whatever our circumstances, totally blown away by his goodness. And isn't therefore this psalm what we need to hear today? God's judgment comes in so many ways, that's true. Most obviously in our time through this coronavirus pandemic. In other words, God is using this natural disaster to challenge his people, you and I. But the question is, what might God be saying to us through it? I think what springs to mind is it's true to say that coronavirus has exposed where we are in our personal relationships with God. Because with lockdown restrictions, our personal relationship with God is all that we have to keep ourselves spiritually healthy. Now, obviously, even if we are in a good place spiritually, these times are hard because fellowship and being together and singing and hearing God's word together are so integral to our Christian lives. But perhaps in these times, God lovingly wants us to see what we are individually really like before him. So perhaps our suffering over this time is because we've been on a starvation diet for so many months. Not physically, but spiritually. The famine is a famine of the word of God and fellowship with God and his people. And we're starving because in the past we've been so reliant on others to feed us that we've lost sight of how to feed ourselves and fellowship with God ourselves that way. Perhaps through these government restrictions... God is teaching us to reach out to him personally. And the thank offering he asks us to enjoy is this, that we sit down with God and enjoy the benefits and blessings and revel in the sacrifice that he has offered for us, his son, Jesus Christ. And we do that on his terms, not our own. We do that by living godly lives and laying down our persistent sins and our persistent expectations that God will overlook our ungodliness. We do that by living daily in fellowship with God rather than keeping him at a distance. That is God's way. And if it is God's way, when we follow in it, we will find true fellowship with God and a new spiritual vitality, we will find at the end of this journey through a COVID world that God has made us richer for it. And that's God's grace. That's his, that, that his judgment is so full of love and it's intent on bringing us through judgment and back into a more robust, a fuller, a freer, a more beautiful relationship with him. That's his purpose. And, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you want to find God's way back to God, then talk to him. If we want to sit down with him and enjoy his fellowship offering, then we just need to tell him that. If we don't know how, well, look at our, our website resources page. And, and there are so many things on there that will help you. Or if you want to send an email to the church office and ask one of us to go for a walk and a talk and to pray with you, then please do that. We'd be, we'd be so willing to, to do that with you. 
But let's consider this together. God is judging his people because he loves his people. The struggles we're going through right now, the spiritual difficulty, spiritual difficulties that we're experiencing are given by God to challenge our expectations and expose our hypocrisies and bring us into a new and living relationship with our royal king. So let's rejoice. Our God is not a pushover, nor is he spitefully vengeful. No, he judges his people in order to bring them into a relationship with him. And his discipline is truly loving. Let's praise him for it. Now, just one last thing to mention. Next week, we're in Psalm 51. And if we've been really struck by what this psalm says, and if we're drawn to God to talk to, talk to him in repentance, then do that now. Talk to God. Pour out your heart to him. And if you're struggling to know what to say and how to say it, then can I encourage you, turn over the page. Don't wait for next week. Turn over the page now and read Psalm 51, which is what we're going to be looking at next week, and speak out that psalm to God in your heart, in your soul. Because God in his grace follows Psalm 50's message about God's judgment with Psalm 51's heart cry of repentance. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that just what our God is like? That he doesn't leave us under judgment, but he teaches us how to come to him in repentance and love and faith. And brothers and sisters, I understand this is a difficult sermon to listen to. It's a difficult passage to read. But I pray, I pray and I ask, I plead with God that all of us would be challenged and changed. All of us would be amazed and stunned that our God loves us so much that he he just doesn't leave us comfortable where we are. He's constantly drawing us to himself deeper and deeper into a new, newer and newer personal relationship with him. Let's rejoice over that. Let's praise him and let's pray for one another that in these times, as we go through his judgment together, that together we would be more and more drawn closer to him by his grace, by his power, through his judgment and for his glory. Let me pray. Oh, Father God, we we, we stand amazed at this psalm for its honesty, its reality, its openness about your judgment. We stand amazed at this psalm for exposing our hearts in, in so many ways. We stand amazed at this psalm that this psalm doesn't leave us judged, but it, it, it draws us to God and teaches us how to draw to God in these times. And Father, I pray that we would take it on board uh, with our whole hearts, with our whole minds. May you change us and may you give us the, the, the conviction to go to your table, to sit down and talk to you honestly about where we are spiritually, to repent, to determine to follow in your way, the way of sacrifice and fellowship with our God. Oh, Father God, may we rejoice at what you've done here, but may we also seek out practical ways that we might fellowship with you more and more in more and more personal ways. Lord God, we ask that in these times we would be able to rejoice that you are working in us to draw us closer to you. And we pray these things for your glory. Amen.